And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Maggie. And I am Harmony. And this week we are reading Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, which I think is going to be an interesting time because this is a book that Harmony really, really loves and that I am, am neutral to positive on. I wouldn't, I don't dislike it by any means, but uh, this is the fourth Sylvia Moreno-Garcia book I've read and it's my least favorite of the four. So Harmony, why don't you tell me a little bit about your experiences with the book and your thoughts and feelings about it, especially now that we're revisiting it in this context? So the first time I read this book, I read it over audiobook, and I think that really added to my enjoyment. The only other Sylvia Moreno-Garcia book I've tried before was The Gods of Jade and Shadow. And I didn't finish that one for some reason that just really didn't jive with me. But I think that this book had so many interesting plot points. And I think because it was for an older audience, I related to it a lot more. For me, this was an interesting read because I'm not really big into mystery. And though this isn't a mystery book proper, it has a lot of mystery elements within it. And... I was just really caught up in the story and the not so subtly veiled metaphors and the whole aesthetic of it, you know, the 1950s Gothic in Mexico. It was a very compelling world for me. And I also really loved the magic elements. So I found it really delightful. I tried rereading it again this for this time around. And it was a little bit of a different experience. I still loved the world, but the language was a little harder for me because I was reading with my eyes. It, it, was, it didn't jive quite as well as it did in the spoken word for me. That makes sense. I think that my issues with this book first time around were, to be perfectly honest, and I mean, this is totally just subjective opinion because I think this book genuinely has a lot of interesting things to say and we're going to have a great conversation about it, but... I found the first half of the book really slow going and really boring and kind of hard to get through. And then there's a point halfway through the novel where shit hits the fan and things get really magical and you find out about the mushrooms and it's kind of just insane from there on. And for me, that back half was like a five star. But I do think that revisiting this story with a more critical lens and also having the opportunity to read an interview that the author Sylvia Moreno-Garcia did with NPR while I was doing this really made me look at this book from a, a colonial standpoint and thinking about what this book had to say about colonialism. And I think the deep amount of metaphor she was able to put in Noemi and Catalina's physical bodies in relationship to colonialism really improved my personal experience reading the book because what she did was so 
interesting and I think so clever with those things that for me, I had a better experience sort of on this second time around because I was looking for much different things than I was the first time around when I was really just kind of going in for the haunted house horror novel aspects of it and looking for a good time, which isn't to say that this novel isn't a good time. It just didn't meet my needs the first time I read it. I get that. Yeah, I think I caught on to the colonial aspects while reading it the first time. But I think now that I've learned more about colonialism, right, because I'm in grad school, so I feel like my knowledge expands each year and will remain that way until I graduate grad school and no one's forcing me to learn all the time. (laughs) I think that I also got to view it a little bit more deeply and through a different lens. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Maggie, do you have a summary of this book that you want to give us? Sure, I can give you a summary. So this book follows Noemi, who is living in 1950s Mexico. And Noemi is a really, really smart, driven person who really wants to go to university, even though that is something that isn't really that women of her station at the time don't really do. You know, she's an heiress. She's kind of a socialite. She's expected to marry well and kind of keep her family's legacy going that way. Noemi's cousin Catalina got married, did that whole situation, and then suddenly starts sending back very strange and very distressed letters to her family, basically begging to be gotten out of the situation she's in. She seems frankly, kind of unhinged. And Noemi makes a deal with the rest of her family, with her father, to say, I'm going to go check on Catalina. If I do all of this, I expect to come back and be able to go to university. And so this is the deal that is struck. Noemi goes deep into the mountains to this mining town that is essentially owned and operated by this British family that Catalina has married into. And when Noemi gets there, she discovers that Catalina is really, really sick. She's bedridden. She's frankly raving. She's saying all kinds of things that seem very, very unbelievable. And Noemi's really concerned about her cousin, but is not really in the position to be able to extricate her from the situation herself under her own power, given societal expectations and norms at the time. The longer that Noemi stays at the house, the more that she also starts to see very strange things that are happening. She starts to see visions and has very, very strange dreams of a golden woman who comes out of the walls and things get progressively more disturbing from there until she discovers this family's secret, which is essentially that they have discovered what what is akin to an elixir of immortality through these mushrooms. And the family has reached a point where they essentially need to be marrying in new people to the family so that they can keep this sort of crazy immortality situation going and going. The family prior to this point had been marrying pretty much only in amongst themselves. And the only reason they've started to marry new people is because the incest has affected their fertility. And so from there, which is the majority of the plot from there, it's all about the ways in which Noemi and Catalina kind of plot their escape from this very intense mushroom house. And yeah, that's essentially the plot of the story. Good job, Maggie. That was a really great summary. Some of the things that you said in your summary kind of highlighted one of the themes that I hadn't really picked up on before. But this book is, as Maggie stated, positioned in the 1950s. And I feel like that's important for a few reasons. 
I know when I first read it, I really envisioned it being the 40s or the 30s or something, perhaps because so much of it takes place in the Doyle household and the Doyle household is supposed to be old fashioned. But as we were highlighting the differences between Catalina and Nomi, something Maggie said really stuck out to me. And it's this idea that Catalina followed a more traditional route, which I think from the understanding of the 1950s that I have placed in the U.S., makes a lot of sense, right? There weren't a lot of women getting jobs or working or going to graduate school. And those are all things that Nomi does. And in that interview that Maggie referenced earlier on NPR that Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, in the interview she has with NPR, she states that Nomi is a sexually active being, right? She is so very modern in a lot of ways, even though she's positioned in the 1950s. So I think that that juxtaposition was really interesting, especially because I don't know much about the 1950s in places outside of the U.S. And this does take place in Mexico. And at one point in the story, they mention that it's not uncommon for places like where the Doyle household is to not have electricity, which is something that I would have thought was pretty common in the 1950s in the U.S., for instance. So I wonder... I wonder, not knowing even that much about the 1950s, I wonder what sort of push and pull towards modernization was going on during that era, because I feel like it is really embodied in the different lifestyles of Catalina and Nomi. I think that's a really interesting question, and it's actually one that I've been dealing with a lot based in the US. I'm currently developing an exhibit that's all about race, class, and gender in the the 1950s in the United States. And my thought process for developing this exhibit, I think, relates to this story, because I think that often when we think about radical big change in history, we often think about the one big moment and the one big movement where it happens. But in actuality, that ends up erasing all of the work that individual people did pushing boundaries in their own lives and in their societal context at the time for decades and decades that leads up to that big moment and that big movement where there's masses of people on the stage. So I thought that that was a really interesting balance in this book, because to me, it it almost reminded me of that, right? Because Noemi is so forward thinking, she is so modern, and she's not content to just accept what her family gives her. And it's also interesting because Catalina is a cousin, and so she's not really part of the main socialite family in the same way. So part of the reason that Noemi even has those opportunities to push boundaries is because she has the social status and the social standing of being part of that sort of main branch of her family, whereas Catalina, even just being one step removed in the societal hierarchy, has less options, even though she's still of a very high class. So I thought that that was really interesting, too. And I think that something, it says something I think really important that this book touches on a lot, which is about class and privilege and how those two things interrelate. I mean, when we get to this mining town, we have conversations about workers' rights and strikes and things that were going on. And those aspects relate to like this magical fungus that are happening because a lot of the bad things that are happening in this mining town are related to the fact that people are getting really, really sick because of this fungus. But I think that it's also, it also really reminds me of the nuances in which class and gender can really intersect with each other. Because even when you're at a very high class and from the outside seem like you have it all, 
if you were a woman presenting person in the 1950s, your living in sort of a gilded cage, you know, your options can be really limited. And I really loved being able to see Noemi's perspective because Noemi has that privilege to push and she does push. And she pushes as well, not just for herself to be able to go to university, to be able to push really far, but she pushes for Catalina. She refuses to leave without Catalina, even when she realizes that things are going really poorly she continually pushes to get Catalina better care while they're there, which is really hard to do because not only is she in her cousin's married family where she's trapped, this family is also all white of British descent. So there's a lot of things about colonialism and race and eugenics happening here in which they just consistently really look down upon Noemi. And Noemi just doesn't take that for an answer and really perseveres because somebody she loves is in a lot of danger. And so I think that there's something really lovely about Noemi's character that Garcia smartly places her in a place where she can push boundaries and also gives her a lot of characteristics that means that she's likely to push those boundaries and she's not going to take no for an answer. So it's this really wonderful intersection of circumstance and personality that creates Noemi as being who she is. That's fair. I feel like you kind of got into a little bit of the crafting of the novel. And I guess just to kind of comment a little bit about crafting and Noemi's character, I feel like the author also made Noemi really realistic in that pushing, because I feel like often when we get into period pieces, we can see characters who are rebellious for the sake of being rebellious and not necessarily, they don't feel constructed from their time periods, but Noemi still kind of does. One of the ways that she handles men, for instance, is to assume flirtatious behavior. She knows how to manipulate them in a way that works for the time period in which she is constructed in. And so I did appreciate that in her character, rather than just making her completely unproblematic and the quote-unquote feminist hero. Not that that's not particularly unfeminist, but it still shows that she still has these constraints. And I feel like the fact that she has so much privilege kind of shows that construction too, as you were saying. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Garcia did such a great job, I think, of placing you in this historical time period, but also making it historically ambiguous. I keep on thinking that this novel happens in the 1920s. This is probably because my favorite Silvia Moreno Garcia novel takes place in the 1920s in Mexico, to be fair. But I think it's more largely because, as Harmony was saying, you know, the Doyle house doesn't have electricity. The Doyles specifically live in a very, very antiquated mindset. The Doyles are behind the times. They're in extremely isolated rural Mexico where the Doyles themselves are able to really dictate in their little bubble what is normal, what isn't normal. They have a lot, a lot, a lot of power because of their isolation. And Garcia does such a great job at getting you into who Noemi is, why Noemi is the way that she is, and her character motivations. Because I think the other thing that's really well done about her is that I understand exactly what has pushed her to push back, if that makes sense. Because I think that as much as we all have our moral ideals, I think a lot of people get pushed to action and even more radical action because of personal connections that they can make in their own lives that make them want to make change. And then that opens their eyes to other people's experiences and other people's injustices. And a lot of people who move out from there, I think that's just 
kind of how humans work in a lot of cases. And Noemi starts from this place of understanding the ways in which she is so smothered, even with as much privilege as she has. And when she sees her cousin suffering and knows that it's 10 times worse for Catalina, there is, it's just very believable as to how and why she pushes back in the ways that she does. And some of the ways she pushes back are pretty big. She refuses to pretty much follow the rules of the household even when the consequences of of disobeying those rules are very scary for her physically. As a content warning for this book, this book does get into some on-the-page sexual harassment and sexual assault, so be warned if those are triggers for you. I personally felt like they were handled pretty well in the sense that they weren't gratuitously graphic, but they are on-the-page moments. But there's also really tiny ways in which Noemi pushes back as well. She refuses to stay in the house. She continues to smoke in the house, even though it upsets the fungi, which she doesn't know at the beginning, but she does know at the end. She and Francis, who is her love interest, only speak Spanish in the house, which is, I mean, something I think we've got to dive into later because there's so much lovely nuance there. But it's ways big and small that she's pushing back. It's not just this one giant moment in which she tries to free Catalina and that's it. It's active resistance at every level of her existence in this house. I think that's important. I think while we're talking about power and resistance, we should get into a little bit of the power structures that are going on within this novel, which we've already kind of alluded to. As Maggie said, the Doyle household is white. They found this fungus that they appropriated from indigenous peoples and turned it into something evil and toxic and sickly. They're obsessed with purity, so they incest all over the place, which doesn't seem very pure. One... (laughs) One of the things that Maggie also mentioned was that they need people who are indigenous to Mexico so that they can keep their mushroom alive, which just kind of makes sense. And it's talked about a lot in the novel because Nomi is an anthropologist, so eugenics and the science behind natural selection and all of that is discussed throughout the novel. But one of the interesting things I found about choosing both Catalina and Noemi to marry into the family is the fact that they are so very upper class, right? So I I don't know. And Catalina doesn't even have the right DNA that they supposedly need. So I found that really interesting too. These different power structures and the way that Noemi is treated, but also revered and kind of almost fetishized. But it's also it's also interesting, too, because they couldn't actually marry a poor person, not just because they need the resources of people like Noemi's family in terms of money, but also because they just wouldn't respect it. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting things happening with power structure here, too. And I think to latch on to one of the things that you said, something that I found really important about this novel, which I'm unsurprised that Sylvia Moreno Garcia did because this is what she studied in grad school, but I still found to be really important, is that eugenics is very clearly named as the goal of the Doyle family. Howard has literal eugenicist texts in his library. It's one of the first things that Noemi discovers about the family. There's no, oh, what's this? Noemi sees this shit, identifies it as being racist as fuck, eugenicist bullshit. And that theme is embedded throughout the novel in a very, very explicit way. And I really appreciate that because I feel like 
when we look at a lot of texts that engage with eugenics and the reasons that eugenics are bad, it's not always named so explicitly. And Garcia in this novel goes all out. She's like, nope, this is exactly what is happening here. And not only that, the Doyle family knows what they're doing. The Doyle family needs people who are indigenous to Mexico. They want this resource desperately badly. They want to conquer, but then simultaneously they're terrified of mixing in any true way. And in the interview with NPR that she did, which was a great interview, thank you NPR, she talks about this idea that part of the reason that colonies were so scary for Europeans for so long was because since you were essentially divorced from the homeland, mixing was inevitable, right? People were going to create a more cohesive culture. People were going to intermarry. All of this stuff was going to happen. And the Doyle family is the perfect embodiment of that deep-seated British colonial terror of being so dependent on something that you believe to your core is lesser than you, even though obviously it's actually not. But then being, but wanting it so badly and not just because you want to own it or conquer it or whatever other fucked up colonial things, but because it th- you think that you, it makes you a better person, right? The Doyles want to be immortal because they want to be immortal forever. And so therefore they found something indispensable in this land. And all of that mind fuckery is going on in pretty much all of the characters who live in this house, except for Francis at any given time. And that's not to say that Francis is innocent by any means. Francis is just literally the only Doyle that has any balls to push up against any of this in any way. Not to get too off track from your point, but while we're on the topic of Francis, I was revisiting the ending of this book. And it's interesting because Francis still has, as Maggie mentioned, Francis, Catalini, Catalina and Nomi all get out of the house after this big fire. And they there are three protagonists that live. But Francis, it's kind of hinted at, could still become infected with this disease that his family has, which is attached to the fungi. And I really felt like that was a nod towards the way that white people can't necessarily just give up their racism, right? We can't, we are still infected with this legacy of violence and white supremacy and racism and colonialism. But there's potential for him to maybe start anew, right? He has to be careful of it and he has to monitor it and he has to recognize that it's inside of him. But he can also still work towards being a decent human being and not having to live with that sickness. That's my quick little Francis take. Back to you, Maggie. No, I think it's a really good Francis take. And I think just to expand on that even further, he says at the very end of the novel that he's worried because fire can actually enhance the fungus and that the fungus will go grow back stronger. And I think that that, not to get too deep into this metaphor, but let's get really fucking deep in this metaphor, apparently. I think that that's also such an interesting take on colonialism and racism, too, and how we can't excise that from ourselves. Because I think that white people can often, and I'm not immune from this by any means, I'm not trying to exclude myself from the white people here, can often do one big thing and be like, I'm done. I did it. I've done the work. Whereas in actuality, that's almost the most dangerous mindset to be in is being like, yeah, I'm done. I've did. I've did this I've I've done the work here and I think that the work in this case is this forest fire that starts and Francis is actively naming the fact that no this fire can actually make all of these things grow back stronger and I have to be really aware of that and I really enjoy I mean the ending 
in terms of, I guess, reader satisfaction is kind of open-ended because of all of this, because you're just left with this, I don't know, unease. But A, I think that works really well for a horror novel, which is what this is. And B, in terms of, again, this metaphor of colonialism and eugenics and racism is so potent and so important in terms of Francis's character. I agree. One of the things that I found interesting this time around was this idea of knowledge, right? Because now that's what I'm studying. And I hadn't really latched on to the fact that the Doyles take this plant knowledge, this traditional knowledge that's contained by the indigenous people, and then turn it into something sickly. And I don't even... I don't even know if I can dig deeper than that, but that that really stuck with me this time around. And I was like, oh, wait a second. We're taking something and we're turning it into something bad. And there, there are tons of things I'm sure that are related to that, like the exploitation of the land. I want to know what your thoughts are on it, though, Maggie. I thought that the misuse of knowledge in this novel was a really well done aspect because it happens in two very main ways as harmony was saying it happens from the misuse of this local and an appropriation as she named it earlier of this local resource from indigenous peoples that has taken it and turned it into something violent and sickly that not only hurts the family but also the indigenous peoples around them now and and the mexican people around them who are helping them continue to cultivate this resource but also the doyles misuse traditional western knowledge too right because they're so deep into eugenics and they use science in heavy quotes as ways to continually prove that why what they're doing is right and it's such this warped mindset that i think that to a certain extent for me, that was part of why the incestuous aspects of this novels of this novel was here, because the misuse of knowledge is so rampant that the Doyle fa- and the Doyle family believes because of their proof that they are so right that they go against the taboos of their own culture and their own society as well on a very deep, cringy, uncomfortable level in order to be able to say that they are doing that they have become these transcendent mortals. So I thought that that was a really, really interesting way to do it, that raw knowledge in and of itself does not equal, I don't know, actual intelligence in some way, or like the the right to use it or power. And I think in relationship specifically to the plant knowledge aspect, I found that really interesting because almost every plant, uh, most plants are not solely good or solely bad. There's lots of plants that can be used for medicinal purposes, but in improper quantities or mixed with the wrong things can make you really sickly or even be deadly. So I think it's this inherent idea that every resource has one fundamental purpose and one fundamental use, when in actuality, resources, especially in the natural world, have a multitude of purposes and a multitude of uses, and you have to respect every aspect and every facet of those things. So... You said a lot of really important things there, but one of the things that struck me as you were speaking was this idea of singularity. Among the many things that I've been reading about recently is epistemological supremacy. And I think that we see that within this book, right? We see this idea that, oh, there is one truth and one way of doing things, and it's embedded into this town. And I feel like we can see the author doesn't directly. I mean, she does talk about colonialism, but she doesn't talk about its whole impact on Mexico. 
necessarily within this novel, but she hints at it with, I feel like, even the ways that Noemi knows that she can't immediately call out Howard Doyle when he starts making racist microaggressions the first time that they meet, right? We see that there is still some sort of adherence or some sort of acknowledgement or understanding that, hey, this is the way some weird white people are. And Noemi herself is aware of it because she knows that eugenics is a thing, that it was rampant. She recognizes the arguments right away. And she doesn't seem too horribly surprised by them, I don't feel like. That's that's just an interesting concept. I feel like we see, in general, this idea that white cultures in our, in our colonial methods have this idea of this oneness, that there must be only one way of doing things, one truth, one use for a plant. And I feel like that in of itself is really toxic and takes away the nuance. And maybe that can actually kind of tie us in a little bit into the fungus itself, because I was kind of fascinated and I don't really know where to go with this, but I think the fungus is in some ways kind of beautiful, even though it's turned into this really horrible, creepy thing, and that it has this web. It is able to connect with all of these life forces. And it acts as a parasite now, but it didn't always act like a parasite, right? It used to be something sacred. So I don't know. I find that really fascinating, this idea of this interconnected web and then the Doyle's conquest for singularity. Can you make anything of that, Maggie? I think so. Initially, when you were talking about sort of epistemological hierarchy and epistemological supremacy, where my mind immediately went to is the fact that the house, sort of like the fungi, for example, only understands English, and that Francis and... Noemi are able to do a lot of their plotting and their planning and Catalina as well, because Francis is the only member of the Doyle family who speaks Spanish, who made any effort to actually learn about and understand the culture that he was living in and the community that his family has uprooted and embedded themselves in. So that was where I was going initially, because I thought that that was a really powerful way to say that, uh, to just emphasize the ways in which the Doyles are so eurocentric eurocentered you were euro supremacists but i think that in terms of the fungi something else that i found that was really interesting about that as well is the ways in which violence specifically is what largely morphed the fungi into this parasitic thing that is taking over people that is now hurting people left and right that aren't necessarily part of the doyle family and I think that it's a really, I guess another content warning, this a little bit less explicitly, but this book also deals with gun violence because there is a shooting that kills many members of the core Doyle family as all of this is getting started that kind of sets off the chain of events that leads us to where we are from in the past. And the shooting and the after effects and ripple effects of that are largely what have created this interesting connected web. And I thought that that was a really clever way to talk about the ways in which violence on both big and small scales have these ripple effects that go throughout history. On the micro scale, right, this is a shooting that happened within a family that has now corrupted anything that's happening in this house. But I also did think it was an interesting metaphor for, again, colonialism, right? The ways in which the violence that has happened to this entire community has now created this web of corruption and destruction that ties people together. 
and the ways in which people now have to actively either avoid or resist that, but they're constantly aware of it in their consciousnesses. Yeah, I don't know that I have anything else to point at in the story that really showcases that, but I agree with you. And I think that is really interesting, this idea of violence being the catalyst. Yeah, that's, it's just, it's interesting. It's a fascinating thing. One of the things we have yet to discuss that took place in the, in the interview that I thought was a really interesting take from the author was this idea of needing Catalina and the interviewer was kind of trying to understand where the author was getting at with this. And she says, even though there's a certain sense of objectification, of disgust to the brown body, there is also a sense of desire and of using the brown body in any way that whiteness sees fit. And I feel like that kind of hints at your need for violence, right? Violence is an act of self-servingness. It's it, it's all action, but for the sake of selfishness and for power. And I feel like we see the Doyles do that to the land. We see them do that to the fungus. And we see them do that to the people, right? Because it's not just the brown people related to the fungus or the people that marry into the family that end up getting hurt. We know that within their quest for silver, the Doyles ended up making a bunch of workers, Mexican workers from the town really sick, and they ended up dumping their bodies in unmarked graves. And I feel like that's also this a very, a very violent take. And it's interesting because this violence while it seems more detached from brown people, or I guess more attached to brown people, right? While the violence is enacted in a more detached manner and a less humanizing manner, it still exists within the Doyle household itself. As you mentioned, there is gun violence that takes place only within the family. And the woman, (laughs) the Doyle woman, have to endure a bunch of violence. But even Francis, right? He's seen as a vessel because he isn't super manly. And also because his mother married outside of the Doyle family. He is lesser than, he's already a less pure. So it's interesting how this this violent mentality and epistemology really affects the Doyle family as well. It's just embedded in everything they do. That's that that is their epistemology. It's singular, but their singular epistemology just is violence. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was one of the more powerful messages of the story for me was this way in which Noemi and Catalina in this household had to constantly fight against essentially just being a resource instead of being a person because the only reason that Noemi and Catalina were brought in at all was again because the family is so intermarried that they that the women in the family have largely become infertile. There's this very disturbing scene in which one of the core members of the Doyle family gives birth in a dream to a tumor, which is just, there was a lot happening there. But there's this theme throughout in which Catalina and Noemi are constantly put down upon and yet sort of seen as the only way that, that, like the only thing, especially Noemi, because she sort of jives better essentially with the fungus can save the Doyle family too. So it's this very base fetishization of the brown body that happens 
on so many levels. I mean, there's this scene where Virgil watches Noemi bathe and get out of the bathtub that is just so everything that happens there. For me, that was one of the scenes that stuck with that stuck with me for years since I first read this novel. I, I think of this novel and I think of that scene with Virgil of ownership and use and the ways in which Noemi and Catalina just, especially Noemi, because Catalina is bedbound for the majority of this book, not of her own volition, have to actively navigate that and push back against that. And to me, it's just such a, I don't know, it just feel, it feels like such a clear message about the ways in which racism and colonialism attack, especially women presenting brown bodies as a resource to be used, but also to be looked down upon simultaneously in a way that's just so fucked up and disgusting. I agree. I think that that's a good point. I don't know that I have anything else to add to this discussion, Miss Maggie. Do you have any other points that you would like to bring up that we haven't touched on? No, I don't think so. That was the majority of what I wanted to talk about. Oh, you know what the other thing that I wanted to mention is, and we don't have to deep dive into this, but I did think it was interesting. I thought that there were some really interesting callbacks to Charlotte Charlotte Perkins Gilman in this book that were super interesting, especially to the yellow wallpaper, but also if you've been listening since last season, last season, Harmony and I read Herland. And one of the things that really disturbed Harmony and that I picked up on during the podcast was the eugenics aspect of Herland specifically. But something that we haven't touched on is the fact that this novel also plays with this idea of the crazy woman who has to be bed bound, who is almost institutionalized, who's told that they are very, very ill, when in actuality, it is literally the men in her life gaslighting her to feeling like she's insane. And of course, in this novel, there, there is the magic mushroom aspect of it that is literally making Catalina sick. But I thought that that was also a really interesting callback to what was happening. I mean, the yellow wallpaper came out much earlier than this novel is even set. But to me, it was just so interwoven. I mean, there's a there's a golden lady who comes out of the walls. So I feel like it's not too far of a stretch. But I think that this novel also really goes to show the ways in which medical issues in history have really given men a lot, a lot, a lot of power over women, even when those medical issues are not real and they've been fabricated or they've been purposefully inflicted upon somebody. I don't know that we necessarily have to dive deeper into that, but that was, especially the second time around, something I really picked up upon while rereading. I still haven't read Yellow Wallpaper because I'm really bad at literature. So that's why I didn't, I knew that that was a thing. I knew that the novel was talking about it. I have no context for the actual content that it's talking about. (laughs) Maggie, what are you actually, you know what, what are we reading next week? What are we looking at next week? Do we know? I think technically it's a fun episode, but I don't know what we're reading the week after that. Okay, well, then you will have to stay tuned and listen to our fun episode to find out what we're reading next. What are you reading right now, Maggie? I am reading The Bone Shard Emperor by Andrea Stewart and Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki who is an author that we talked about last year because she's a poet, but she just released her first novel. That's so cool. We have to, we have to look at that. Interesting. All right. I am reading. What am I reading? I am reading. I was reading this book and now I am reading. I'm still reading a Cuban girl's guide to something in tea, 
which I've mentioned before. And I'm also reading The Lost Apothecary, and I don't know who it's by, but it's a popular book, so you can just Google it. Maggie is very happy about this. Let's uh, let's hear why she's happy. Oh, no, never mind. She's not happy. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> and that's it for me. Still teaching to transgress as well, slowly but surely. Alrighty, my friends, that is the end of the episode, and we will talk to you all next week. Goodbye! Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook, at rebelgirlsbook1 on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.